Welcome to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. Please set all electronic devices to mute, as well as small children. No, we're just kidding. Welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend, Walker Howell. And today we have a very special guest to help us with a very special episode. This, of course, is a part of season five. We're going to be looking at common Bible misconceptions, things that people think they understand about the Bible, but maybe in reality they they don't. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit and miracles. And this is actually going to be the first episode of two with our very special guests, Lance Mosier. So go ahead and make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when the second episode comes out so that you can get the full depth of this topic. But we're going to go ahead and let Lance introduce himself. All right. Well, Isaiah has just given me two challenges. Number one, to match his energy because he was not talking like that before we got to work. So here we go. I'm trying to match that energy. And number two, he said in two episodes, we will get the full depth of this topic. And I couldn't even do that in a single book. So uh, that's a big challenge. But we'll do what we can. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, we met Lance, uh, Walker and I met Lance as students here at Freed Hardman. He was a professor here for a little bit, and uh, now is working with the Chalmay Church down in Louisiana. Yes. And uh, we were very thankful that you were able to, to make the drive up here and, and record this with us in person, at least the first episode. And we're so thankful for you and for all of your years of experience and, and wisdom. And uh, we want to make sure to plug real quick for Lance his YouTube channel called Topical Bible Studies. Very, very helpful videos, very good videos as well as his books. He's written uh, three books with a fourth one hopefully coming out soon. Uh, if you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that, Lance, real quick. Sure. The YouTube is youtube.com slash topical Bible studies. We're pumping out about a video per week these days. And then uh, my books are Transformed to Spiritual Journey and Searching for Brandon Basin. Both of those are kind of stories, novels. One of them is fictional. One of them is nonfiction. Uh, but still in novel format. And my third book is Clouded by Emotion, Studies on the Holy Spirit and Miracles, which I guess is a hint as to why uh, these guys brought me onto this podcast because I spent some time writing on the subject. But you can get those books at lancemosierbooks.com. We would highly recommend any of those. I personally have yet to be able to read uh, Searching for Brandon Basin or Clouded by Emotions, but Transformed was very, very good. I highly recommend that book and all the other projects that Lance has undergone. But like we said, today we're going to be looking at the idea of the Holy Spirit and miracles. And again, this is just the first part of a two-episode series, the first time that we've done that on the show, actually, which is really cool. But uh, we're going to be looking at, at the Holy Spirit, at miracles. And, you know, this is something that, as we mentioned already, there's a lot to be discussed here, which is why we felt the need to break it up into two episodes. And as Lance pointed out, there's some things that, A, we're not going to get to, B, even if we did have the time to get to them, we don't understand. <laughs> and, and that's the beauty of, of God and of his three natures. We don't have to understand all of these things in order to put our trust in him. Yeah, that's right. I think about um, this podcast in general and how the title is Through the Eyes of Jesus. And then this season is dealing with misconceptions. And I wish we could spend just the entire time talking about through the eyes of Jesus. But unfortunately, when it comes to the Holy Spirit's miracles, you have to spend almost 
as much, if not even more, time focusing on the misconceptions because there are so many different teachings on the Holy Spirit and miracles that we have to wade through before we can get to the truth in some respects. Because if you've been taught anything and then you come to the scriptures with that veiling your eyes from the truth, then you'll have some kind of misconception going into it. And so our best uh, attempt will be to set aside all those things that we've heard about and seen in movies or read in books or heard even preachers say and look at straight the scriptures. But of course, we can't approach this stuff without any kind of bias. We all have biases. But our hope today will be to look at what the scriptures say and look at the Holy Spirit through the eyes of Jesus as opposed to some religious organization or uh, some book that you might read on the topic. And that would include my book as well. Because I started studying the Holy Spirit and miracles in a deep way when I went out door knocking in Porirua, New Zealand back in 2013. And I was out on my own. I didn't have um, my reinforcement partner. He had gone in a different direction knocking doors. He said, you got this. And so I did. And I, I knocked on the door of this guy. Um, he told me to call him Danny because at first it was really hard for me to pronounce his, his given name, which was Tatupataongo. Uh, he was from the Cook Islands, and he was a deacon of the local apostolic church. And he said, I would love to study the Bible with you. That is, after I offered to study. And then he said, I want to study about the Holy Spirit right now. And I felt very ill-equipped for that. And I said, how about I come back on Friday? And uh, so we made the plan to do that, and I went home and studied deeply. And then we started studying through the Holy Spirit and miracles through the scriptures. And that was such a blessing for me to do that. And then from there, one thing led to another, to a Bible study series, and then to teaching a Bible class and a sermon series, and then eventually writing a book on it. And it was in that uh, Bible class uh, series that you did at the congregation that uh, I, I work with now, and you were working with me for a little bit there. Uh, I, it was there that I first heard the idea of the Holy Spirit is a he, mm. not an it. Uh, growing up, I always kind of approached the Holy Spirit as some sort of force, some sort of power or nature, but not as a divine personality or divine nature of God. Yeah. And so I, I never thought about that, uh, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it, until you'd pointed that out to me a couple years ago, or I guess a year ago. Mm. But the point is, that is one of the biggest misconceptions out there, is that the Holy Spirit is somehow different from God. It's not attached to God. It's, it's a, its own moving part, so to speak. Sure. Yeah, and, um, and so I think of Romans 5, verse 5. This is a passage that we actually studied this morning. Uh, Isaiah and I were worshiping together uh, this morning. We studied this passage uh, where Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now the King James says which, but remember it was using language for 400 years ago. But um, this is accurately translated as a personal pronoun, the Holy Spirit who was given to us instead of it or which or that, but it is who. And, and if we're going to look at the Holy Spirit through the eyes of Jesus, then we've got to go to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, we've got uh, the upper room discourse where Jesus spends a lot of time with the uh, remaining 11 apostles after Judas has already left the room. But Jesus has washed their feet. Uh, he's predicted the betrayal. Judas has left the room. 
And now Jesus is left with his 11 remaining disciples, his apostles, and he's giving them warnings. He's giving them promises. He's giving them equipment for the ministry that he has for them in the future after his departure. And he says in John 14 and verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. He explains in verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I didn't count, but several times in these two verses, Jesus uses personal pronouns, the idea of whom and he referring to the spirit. So certainly the spirit is a person. Now, that word, I think it would be worth defining, person being an entity with personality. We're not saying that the Holy Spirit is a human, but that he is an individual. Right. right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the idea of the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he has done. And, of course, we commonly see the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospels and especially in the book of Acts as the, the early church was beginning its work there in Jerusalem and, and as it spread throughout the region. But something that uh, is, is interesting to me, to me to think about is that we find the Holy Spirit as far back as the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. In Genesis chapter 1 yes. and verse 2, we find a mention of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think it's important for us to, to address this right now is the fact that we serve a God, one God in his fullness, but there are three distinct natures, three distinct avenues for us as Christians to approach God. And Holy Spirit is one of those and probably the one, I would say definitely the one that we ignore the most. Mm, I would think so too. Now, I, I think we should be careful the way... So whenever you're using words referencing deity, referencing God, uh, we use words that try to help our minds wrap around this infinite, impossible to fully understand concept. And so we use words like nature, essence, person, being, trinity. These words are not actually, well, a couple of them might actually be, but most of them are not used in scripture in reference to the Godhead. And so uh, if you've studied these things and you're listening and you're thinking, well, my study has concluded that the word nature is a worse word than the word essence or something like that. Well, we're not using these words flippantly, but we're also trying not to peg each other down with these words. Uh, but we, we do look at how in Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 28, this is what is known as the Great Commission by many people. And that's another phrase that not, that's not necessarily found in Scripture, but most of us know what we mean by using the words Great Commission, just like the word Trinity isn't in Scripture. But if I mention the Trinity, most of us know what we're talking about. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, and it would be worth noting that the them would be the 11 in verse 16, the 11 whom he was speaking to in that upper room about the Holy Spirit. He says uh, to these guys, all authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus claims that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, where did Jesus get that authority? 
It had to be from the person who could give it. Yeah, and we see, and a passage we'll have to look at in just a moment, it came from the Father. And so the Father gave Jesus all authority. So that right there uh, kind of assumes the existence of at least two in the one. But then he mentions in verse 19 that these people, as they make disciples, are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, regarding Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the definite article is used three times. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the definite article is used once when talking about name. It's not names plural. It's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so be careful when quoting this passage because when we quote, we forget these little details. We might say, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son. No, we might say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, because there's only one name, but there are three in that name. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, it's, and another reason why I think it's really important that we reference the Holy Spirit as a he. One of the troubles is because a, a spirit is kind of like an it. And so we generally reach for that pronoun when we're talking about a spirit, my spirit, it. But Jesus uses the pronoun he when referencing the spirit. So we need to get in that habit. But one of the dangers of treating the spirit as an it is we we see him as a thing to be manipulated. And you'll find that in a lot of religious circles these days where the spirit is just something that comes upon you when the lights are low, when the music is repetitive, when the fog machine is going, uh, when you feel good, or when you are chanting a prayer over and over and over as if the spirit is something that you can manipulate. Um, but no, the Holy Spirit, he has a will. He has an authority. Here, he has the name of God. And so we can't manipulate God, so why would we treat the Holy Spirit as something we can manipulate? I think we see a, a biblical example of that. Maybe not exactly uh, in the same sense of what you were referencing, but an example of that would be in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the story there is that this couple sells a piece of property, and they bring it before the church to donate uh, so that the church can help the poor. But they say, you know, we sold it for, uh, just to use common numbers to help us understand, we sold this piece of property for $100,000, when in reality they had sold it for $200,000. But they were lying, they were deceiving uh, the church and trying to deceive God by saying that, you know, this is all of the money that we made from that sale and we are giving it all to the church. And then in Acts chapter 5, uh, of course, they're, they're talking to Peter here. Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, I believe it is. I'm turning there now. Uh, Acts chapter 5, yes, in verse 4, towards the end of verse 4, Peter tells them that you have not lied to men, but to God. And then later in that passage... Earlier, verse 3. Sorry? All right, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, in verse, verse 4, it says you have not lied to men, but to God. And then in verse 9, when mm. Sapphira comes back in, uh, Peter says that they have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. And, and you're right, Brother Lance, I, I had somehow missed over that. Yeah. Uh, but in verse 3, Peter says to Ananias that Satan had filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So there we see Peter use Holy Spirit and then go to God and then go back to the Holy Spirit. Right. And I think that really speaks to the fact that this is one being with three distinct personalities or, or natures. Yes. And the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit were an it, a thing, 
then what would be the consequence of lying to an it? Uh, my lawnmower. If I tell a lie to my lawnmower, uh, that's not worthy of death here. But here, they try to manipulate and lie to God. And if you were to read the whole account, you would see that both Ananias and Sapphira die for that sin. It's a, a grave sin to lie to God in this sense. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit here in verses 3 and 4, the words God and Holy Spirit are used interchangeably. I think it's really interesting when we, when we look at this subject of the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it, well, that, of course, brings up the question, well, what is he doing? What is his mm. purpose? Yeah. And we see a lot of various descriptions in the scriptures of what the Holy Spirit do, uh, does, what he is doing, what he has done, that kind of thing. And you already referenced a couple of these verses uh, in John chapter 14, where he's called the helper or the comforter. He's also called the spirit of truth. Yes. And uh, what you see as the fulfillment of the spirit of truth, I suppose I should backtrack a little bit. Uh, when I reach for passages on the Holy Spirit, I'm inclined to use the New Testament more than the Old Testament. That is not to say the Holy Spirit was not active and he wasn't involved in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament, but it's just so much clearer in the New Testament because he had a more visible role in the church in the New Testament. Uh, if you were to count them up, the Holy Spirit is explicitly mentioned about 80 times in the Old Testament and about 250 times in the New Testament. And if you look at the proportion, the, New, the Old Testament is more than twice as big as the Old Testament, yet he's mentioned more than twice as much in the shorter New Testament. And so that's why I'm inclined to reach for the New Testament a little bit more. But when you look at his role in the, in the people of God in the Old Testament, you see him inspiring people, giving people gifts. Uh, even some of the musicians and the craftsmen of the Old Testament were given their abilities by the Holy Spirit. And that comes out in, in the church in the New Testament too. But what we're probably more interested in is not just the various gifts, but the miraculous gifts and, and the uh, amazing things that come out in a tangible way in the New Testament through the works of the apostles, for instance, or even the works of Jesus. And so, as we've already looked at John 14 and verse 17, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And he's talking about how he, the Holy Spirit, is going to provide the apostles with what they need in the ministry moving forward. And without getting too much into that, let's just discuss this phrase, the spirit of truth. And so how much of what the Holy Spirit has said can I believe? Should be all. Yeah, it's not meant to be a trick question. <laughs> Everything, because he is known as the spirit of truth. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Peter talks about how the Old Testament prophets were moved by the same Holy Spirit. And so... Paul and Peter and the other writers of the Old Testament, they looked at Scripture not as the work of men, but as the work of the Holy Spirit, who could be believed in all things. And so when we also read in the New Testament that the prophets and the apostles were inspired by the same Spirit, then we can also be just as trusting of the New Testament Scriptures as well, because both the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures we're inspired by God, yes, but if we're going to talk specifically, it was the Holy Spirit gave them. He moved them to speak in this way. Um, and so 2 Peter chapter 1 is one of those passages. And another one, uh, I think, which is a little bit more clear is Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. 
we've got Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus, but here he's going to be talking specifically to the Gentiles who are the fellow heirs with Christ. And he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now, Paul, you never want to go into a competition with Paul with run-on sentences because he would win the trophy. And so a lot of the things that you read from him, you have to unpack it phrase by phrase. What does he say in verse 2? He says that, or verse 3, by revelation, God, that he made known to me the mystery. And so the revelation that was given to Paul was through God, but he also says in verse 5, that which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. And so in verse 3, when he talks about the revelation of God, more specifically in verse 5, that is the revelation by the Spirit. Another time an apostle was using God and the Holy Spirit interchangeably. And so the information that we have in the scriptures was given to these men from Moses all the way to John by the Holy Spirit. Things that were not previously known to men, but have now been revealed by the Spirit. And he says right here in verse 3 that if you read, or that's verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. This doesn't mean that we know everything God knows, but this is everything that God has allowed us to know. It can be found by reading what has been written by the apostles and the prophets who were given revelation by the Spirit. And so one of the things that the Spirit has done is has, he has inspired men and, and his apostles to write the mysteries of God down for us. Okay, so um, I have a question about uh, this this verse that you read, and maybe some of the viewers have the same question as well. And in my translation, in uh, ESV, it, talk, it says holy apostles. Is there any significance there to that and uh, the Holy Spirit, or is there a reason why it's called holy apostles? Um, I don't know if there's any big, huge reveal here, mm -hmm. but also the King, uh, New King James would say the holy apostles. Now, the word apostles generically simply means one who is sent. And mm -hmm. so anybody who is sent on a mission from Christ is referred to as an apostle. Even Barnabas mm -hmm. and Apollos are referred to as apostles on certain occasions. And the word holy means set apart. And so when we think of holy apostles, we might think of men who are spotless with halos over their heads. Mm -hmm. But I think what he means here is the specific apostles that he has chosen, the 12, 13 guys, as opposed to the other guys who are generically apostles. Mm -hmm. And so the holy apostles, the ones that God has chosen, set apart and also sent. That, that's my thought. Now, Paul was certainly one of those. And uh, another one of the apostles, by the way, did that touch on your... Question. All right. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, we see this also being explained by John. There are two very famous Johns in the New Testament. There is John the Baptizer and there is John the Apostle. And the Revelation was written uh, by John the Apostle. And he says in verse uh, 9, I, John, 
both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This phrase, verse 10, I was in the spirit. There's a time when Jesus talks about how David prophesied while he was in the spirit. And so I think that phrase in the spirit is a reference to the times that men have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here John is saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And so the Holy Spirit had a message for the Christians in Asia. And how was John supposed to communicate this message to them? Again, not a trick question. What does it say here? Write a book. Write a book and then send it to them. It's interesting if you follow the rest of the narrative. In chapter 2, we have one of the letters that the Spirit had for the church in Ephesus. So he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And then jump down to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the church in Ephesus, when they received this message, were they audibly hearing it? Not unless it was read aloud to the church. Exactly. That would be the only way they would have received it audibly is if someone was reading it. And so be careful if you ever hear someone say, oh, do you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Well, in the New Testament, it's defined for us right here. When the Holy Spirit was speaking, he had it written down for the churches to hear those things. And that's not just in the letter to Ephesus, chapter 2 and verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are seven letters here. Guess how many times that phrase is used? Seven times. times. And so uh, the Holy Spirit had this message for the churches, and the Spirit chose John as the messenger. He wrote it in a book, and he sent it to the seven churches. And this message is also for us, because... I'm looking around this table and all of us have ears. All right. He says, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we too can hear the Holy Spirit today by doing what? By hearing. By hearing, by reading what has been written to the churches. And that's what we saw in chapter 3 of Ephesians, chapter 3 and verse 4. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Here, when we read, we can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it's interesting when we look at you know, these passages in Revelation about uh, he who has a hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? That implies that the Spirit has authority yes. to command these churches to do something better or to stop doing something that they shouldn't have been doing in the first place. And we see that you know, the Holy Spirit, he has this authority to command the churches because he is equal to the Father and to the Son. Yes, We see that uh, he is... God. He is eternal, he is omnipresent, and he has the authority of God because he is God. And so he is able to command the church. Yeah, and a couple of the things that Isaiah said, we're not going to take the time to go to those passages for those who are taking notes, though. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit. And in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, the psalmist asks, where could I go from your spirit? The idea is, could I ever hide from you, God? No, because your Holy Spirit is always there. He, the Holy Spirit, is omnipresent. In John chapter 14, in verse 26, 
It says, but when the helper comes, and we've already seen the helper is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have, you have been with me from the beginning. Uh, having that in mind, let's also look at chapter 14 and verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then we also have um, chapter... 16 verse 15 all things that the father has are mine therefore i said that he will take of mine and declare it to you so what these passages are saying if you look at all of them in context jesus is speaking to the apostles and that's one of the really important things to get in this passage in john 14 15 and 16 jesus has a lot of promises regarding the holy spirit and he promised them directly to the apostles and he says i have many more things i want to teach you guys but you cannot bear them now, but the Holy Spirit will deliver them to you. And in chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, All things that the Father has are mine. That's why I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take of mine and declare it to you. If anyone was looking in their Bible, in Revelation, when we were reading those letters to the churches, if you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, those were all red letters. Yet, it was the Spirit who was speaking. We made note of that. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Yet they were red letters. Why? Because if you read the context of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, it's Jesus speaking through the Spirit. Because all authority was the Father's. He gave that authority to Jesus the Son. And Jesus sent his message to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And so in Revelation 2 and 3, those letters to the churches, it was Jesus speaking, but more specifically, the Spirit provided that message to John. And I think when, when we're looking at the idea of the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he's done, of course, we, we've looked at all these passages that point out that he has authority, he is God, he's from God. Uh, we, we looked at the idea of he is the helper, he's the spirit of truth. But as we mentioned earlier, uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about these miraculous abilities that mm. he gave to the apostles in the first century. Yep. We, when we look at the stories of Jesus healing the sick, or of Peter casting out a demon, or of John healing a layman, or, or whatever it may be, we look at these things and we say, wow, if the Holy Spirit is still active and present today, which he is, then I should be able to do some of those mm. things too. And I think it's important for us to, first of all, look at the definition of miracles because when we think of about the holy spirit and miracles we of course first have to understand what those words mean we've we've looked at who the holy spirit is but now we need to look at what is a miracle all right uh when i think of defining the word miracle uh, i find hebrews chapter 2 very helpful hebrews 2 we have uh verses 1 and 2 uh, the Hebrews author is warning those who would drift away from the truth that God means what he says and that every transgression and disobedience will receive a just reward. And so he poses that amazing question in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, so that's kind of a rhetorical question. We'll never escape the wrath of God if we neglect his salvation. Uh, 
and he's getting to this point, he says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. All right, so the salvation that God has to offer was brought by Jesus. He started speaking that salvation. And then what happened? It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So the Lord spoke salvation. Now put yourself in the Hebrews author and the recipients of this letter in, in their shoes. They were not there walking with the apostles 30 or so years ago. They did not see Jesus with their own eyes. And so they're accepting the message of salvation based on the word of the apostles and prophets. Uh, guys, can you give me any kind of proof that the salvation that you're speaking of is truly from God? And here's the answer from the Hebrews author. He says, the Lord spoke at first, and then it was confirmed by his eyewitnesses, or to his eyewitnesses, how? Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so the message that was spoken was confirmed by the Holy Spirit through three or four things mentioned here. Number one, signs. Number two, wonders. Number three, various miracles. And number four, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And all of these were according to his, the Holy Spirit's, own will. So things that work with miracles are signs, wonders, and gifts. And they are all by the Holy Spirit's Will. You have a lot of people who claim to be able to perform miracles by their own will these days. But no, the, the true miracles were performed by the Holy Spirit's will. This word miracle comes from a Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. And that's why uh, sometimes the word dunamis is translated as the word power instead of miracles, or sometimes the word power is provided alongside the word miracles, powerful miracles. Uh, because whenever a miracle was biblically being performed, it was something that was powerful, recognizable, something completely out of the ordinary. It wasn't just a crazy coincidence, but it was something that was absolutely impossible without the obvious working of God, a work of power. What are some examples that might come to your mind? Well, we think of miracles. We think of things that humans would not be able to normally do without divine intervention. And so uh, recently I've been doing a series, a sermon series on leprosy. Mm. And I've noticed that without divine intervention, if you had leprosy, you were dead. So in the instance of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, he was healed by uh, Elisha and through the Holy Spirit commanding him to go dip in the Jordan. Uh, we see a couple of accounts in the Gospels of Jesus healing someone or multiple someones with leprosy. Yes. And the idea there is that that is a miracle because in Bible times, the disease of leprosy could not be cured. It was, it was deadly and there was, there was no way to get around that except divine intervention. Now, I don't know. I'm actually asking this out of my own curiosity. Is there a cure of leprosy in 2022? So the way that I understand it is that leprosy, it's, uh, when we use the word leprosy in modern medicine today, it's slightly different than it was in Bible times. It's not exactly the same disease. And there's also uh, been a cure discovered for it. 
So okay. it's, it's not as severe and it's not as common as it was in Bible times. Right. So if we even had that medicine, like if we had that medicine and gave it to somebody during Bible times and cured them of leprosy, that's not the same thing as a miracle. Right. Because we cured what was previously understood as an uncurable disease. Yet we found the medicine. We found the recipe that would bring that to an end. Uh, because we see Naaman, for instance... Everybody who had leprosy, could they just go to the Jordan and dip seven times and be cured? That was a special case. That was a special case. It shows that you, you couldn't just depend on the water to cure you. It was clearly a work of God. And he, of course, that is a fantastic passage to preach on, showing how God doesn't use these magical wands. And Naaman was upset because it was the dirty waters of Jordan. He was expecting the clean waters and so on. Uh, but yeah, that was a miracle because not anybody who's sick can just go to the Jordan River and dip seven times and be healed. There was this special case where God was doing something that would not naturally or normally happen. It was also a miracle because it happened immediately. Yes. If, if we're talking about you know going back in time and giving someone with leprosy this medicine that we have nowadays, there would still be that healing process, that recovery process. That wasn't the case. When we talk about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, he dipped in the Jordan and after the seventh time, as he was commanded to do, when he came out, it says that his skin was completely clean. Yeah. When Jesus healed those lepers in Mark chapter 5 or Luke chapter 17, they were immediately healed. There was no beginning recovery process. There was no quarantine uh, time period. It was they were healed at the snap of a finger. Yeah, immediately. Now, I think um, we're kind of ignoring whatever the, the audience is yelling at us. You're, you've gone back in time. Isn't that a miracle? All right, for, forget that. Yeah. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. So miracles were things that, all right, we're talking about qualities of miracles now, immediate. Uh, today, um, if I've got chronic headaches or terrible back pain or even a really terrible disease that the doctor has condemned me, saying, look, you've only got six weeks to live, um, and uh, or, or whatever, if I go through this process of prayer and medicine and recovery and then further medicine and checkups to make sure that things are progressing well, that's not the same thing as the miracles we see in the Bible where somebody was immediately healed or a demon was immediately cast out. Uh, Jesus walking on the water, for instance, they were all verifiable in the moment. And so it wasn't something that could be hidden. Uh, which I suppose brings up another quality of miracles is that the miracle worker was not afraid to do so in public, even in front of his critics. Uh, it wasn't in closed church buildings in a secret meeting or anything like that. Uh, anybody could go up to the person who was healed and question and find that truly a miracle took place. In fact, we see that a few times in scripture, don't we? Uh, John chapter 9, for instance, there was a man who was born blind. And the apostles ask, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus said it was neither, but it was so that the works of God may be manifested in him. And Jesus heals him. And everybody's amazed because isn't this the guy we've known to be blind his entire life? And even today, we don't have a cure for blindness. And they bring him in for questioning. They even question his parents. How in the world did this happen? And one thing that's worth noting in that case in John chapter 9 is, when the formerly blind man was questioned, who healed you? The guy said, I don't know. Uh, this one thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. Maybe that sounds familiar to people who sing hymns. Uh, that's where, uh, what was the guy's name, John? Oh, I can't remember. It was a very common name. Uh, the, the former slave trader, he wrote Amazing Grace. 
Anyway, John Newton. John mm-hmm. Newton, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he wrote that, uh, and he borrowed from the um, that, that passage in John chapter 9. Uh, I don't know, except that I once was blind, and now I see. And so how much faith, then, did this formerly blind man have in Jesus the Christ, in Jesus as the Christ? He couldn't have had faith. He didn't even know who he was. He didn't know who he was talking to. Um, yet, he, Jesus was willing to heal him. Now, a lot of re- religious circles today say a prerequisite for a miracle happening would be complete faith in Jesus. In fact, when I was searching, when I was starting to read the Bible for myself, and, and I was around some people who were claiming to be able to perform miracles, I asked them to help me speak in tongues, to help me have a prophecy. And when it wasn't working, uh, they just they said, you don't have enough faith because you have to have ginormous faith in order for a miracle to happen in your life. Yet this blind man didn't even know who Jesus was. And yet Jesus was willing to work the works of God in him. I think it's important for us to also think about when we're thinking about the qualifications of miracles. Not only were they done before believers and skeptics alike, not only were they immediate and complete healings, if it was a a disease or uh, casting out of a demon or something like that. And as you mentioned, faith was not always required in the case of the, the blind man. But these things were done even from a distance. Mm, yes. We, we see, uh, I mentioned earlier in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1, where Jesus heals a leper by touching him. Uh, of course, there's a great story of compassion there and, and love from Jesus to this unclean leper. But we also see stories where Jesus heals lepers from afar, like the Luke 17 passage. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't get near them. He, he sees them from a distance and they cry out and say, God, please save us. And he says, Go off to the priest, mm-hmm. right? You, you have been cleansed. We also have the uh, the story, I believe it's, is it Mark chapter 5, where the uh, the synagogue's ruler comes to him and, and says, my servant is sick at home, and, and Jesus heals him. Yeah, from a distance. From he a doesn't distance. even have to go to the house or anything. It's told, it's a far way away, and, and this guy had to travel a distance to get to Jesus, and by the time he got home, he notices that uh, his, his servant had been healed. I can't remember exactly what passage that is. Yes, and it's also worth noting that miracles, uh, as we already saw in Hebrews chapter uh, 2, that miracles were given by the will of the Holy Spirit. Another thing um, alongside that idea is that miracles were God's prerogative. He gave them to whom he chose, and he performed them as he chose. I mean, I when I think of Peter as an apostle, I think, wow, he had the power to heal uh, the man by the gate called Beautiful, he healed the, the begging lame man. And he also had the ability to cast out demons and so on. We also see in Acts chapter 9 that he had the power to raise Tabitha from the dead, uh, which is a miracle, by the way. Uh, we don't have a cure for death yet, <laughs> but he was able to immediately heal Tabitha, raise her from the dead. But notice this passage in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through uh, and following, but it says in verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them uh, to, to save a bit of time. Let's go to verse 40. Peter put them all out. These are Tabitha's friends who were talking about how wonderful of a servant Tabitha was. And he knelt down and he prayed. He turned to the body, that is the dead body of Tabitha, 
and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his, then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So a miracle clearly has happened here. She's been dead for some time. But did you notice in verse 40, before he performed this miracle, he knelt down and prayed. Uh, it was still up to God. Even though God had clearly given him the ability to perform miracles, he depended on God to perform this miracle. He couldn't just walk around and start, you know, doing these amazing things to show off or to make himself look cool. It was all in God's will. And God, I suppose, could have said, no, we're not going to raise Tabitha this time. Uh, but God obviously answered his prayer in the affirmative. You know, we see another example of this all the way back in the book of 1 Kings mm -hmm. with the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Yeah. Uh, of course, Elijah was a powerful prophet, a messenger from God, and someone who had the ability to perform miraculous signs. And then we see the, the story of him almost battling the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And of course, Elijah has a little bit of fun first. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, kind of spurs the, the prophets of Baal on. But then we see that when he is ready to ask God, to, or when he's ready to light the altar, he does not, you know, get a match. He does not do anything like that. He prays to God and says, you know, show the people who you are. Yeah. And of course, the, the whole idea behind that passage is they were competing. You know, the prophets of Baal were trying to get Baal to, to light their altar on fire. And Elijah was asking God to light his altar on fire. And whichever one was lit on fire shows that that was the one true mm. God. And I think it's important for us to remember that we do serve the one true God. We serve the altar, or we serve the God who lit that altar on fire. Yeah. Uh, we don't necessarily serve the altar. I apologize for that blunder, but <laughs> we serve the God who lit that altar on fire. And as you pointed out, Lance, it is his will. Right? Mm -hmm. we've, we've said that a couple times already, but it's his will for when miracles were to be formed. Uh, and real quick, the, uh, the passage that we were referencing earlier where Jesus healed a servant from afar is Luke chapter 7. But coming back to this point, uh, when we look at you know, the idea of it's God's prerogative, not humans, well, that, of course, brings up the question, well, why are there miracles in the first place? Mm. What, why would God allow someone to raise someone from the dead or cast out a demon or heal someone from the sick or heal someone from a sickness? What, what, what's the primary purpose of God allowing humans to do miracles? Great question. And when you mentioned 1 Kings chapter 17, um, I thought you were going to talk about the widow and her son who died uh, because that was also a resurrection miracle. And we see uh, Elijah in this passage bring this boy upstairs. And in verse 21, um, uh, he, that is Elijah, stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. So once again, we see that Elijah as a prophet, he didn't just assume, he didn't... Um, feel entitled to this miracle. He prayed to God for it to happen. And we see in verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is, uh, sorry, the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So what is the ultimate um, response to this miracle happening? She recognizes that what Elijah is saying is the truth. Yes. 
And no, there are some other things that this woman enjoyed. She enjoyed the return of her son and however much longer the Lord gave her with her son. So we're not going to ignore the fact that this woman's life was made good again. She was mourning the death of her son and now she has her son again. God helped her tremendously in this. But we also see that something that came out of this was she believed the prophet of God because he had a message for her that how otherwise was she to believe him? Because anybody can walk into any town at any time, even today, and claim, I'm someone special from God. I am the man of God. I am the Christ. I am an angel. Oh yeah? Prove it. <laughs> and, and that's what people of God truly could do. They could pr uh, prove that they had the message of God. Jesus even did that too. He showed great compassion upon the lepers, the lame people, the demon-possessed, and he helped them. But over and over in the scriptures, the primary purpose for the performance of miracles was to actually prove that the message and the messenger were from God. Going back to Acts chapter 9, when uh, Peter healed or raised Tabitha from the dead, that was a blessing to the church here at Joppa. And it was good for Tabitha, I suppose. I, don't, I always think about the people who were raised from the dead. Was that more of a disservice to them? Because uh, as far as I know, all the people who died and were raised in the Bible were, were saints. And so we've got like Lazarus, for instance. He, he believed and, and he died in that state. And so was he in Abraham's bosom enjoying his reward? And then he was brought back to the sinful world? Maybe that was a disservice to Lazarus or from for Tabitha. I don't know. And I don't think we should think about that too much because it's presented as a positive thing where Tabitha is brought back from the dead. But the purpose wasn't just to bless the church and even the community by the presence of Tabitha. Uh, this passage we read earlier in Acts chapter 9 in verse 42 or verse 41, uh, the recently raised Tabitha was presented to the church, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. We see that over and over in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament when a miracle was performed the people believed the messenger or the miracle worker. We see that in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is commissioned. In chapter 4, Moses is like, well, what are, how am I going to make these people believe me? What if they say, oh, the Lord didn't appear to you? And then God gives him the miraculous ability to turn his staff into a snake and his hand into leprosy and the water into blood. And he explains in Exodus chapter 4 that they may believe that I, the Lord, sent you. In Mark chapter 16, in verses 15 and 16, Jesus says that you are to preach the gospel to all creation. And then verse 20, the Lord worked with them and confirmed their message with the signs that followed. The word sign, well, it represents something that points to something. A sign points to something. And that's why miracles are so often referred to as signs, because they pointed to the message and the messenger being from God. Uh, one thing, though, that we didn't discuss, which I think would be worth discussing, we said what are miracles, but what are not miracles? Because in Acts chapter 9, again, Peter prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered that prayer and raised Tabitha from the dead. Does that mean every answer to prayer is a miracle? I don't think so, because you could pray for something that is very natural. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talked earlier about you know having a cure for a certain disease. Right? Uh, a couple of friends recently who had the flu. And so what, what do they do? Well, they stayed in bed, they took some medicine, they had plenty of liquids, and then they got better. 
Does that mean God wasn't involved? Well, absolutely he was involved, but it wasn't a divine, supernatural miracle. Supernatural. All right, so that's the key word, isn't Definitely. it? Supernatural, beyond that which is natural. Uh, we give God the praise and the glory all the same. James 1 verse 17, although I think in context he's talking about the word of God, he does say that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so if there's something good in your life, the scriptures say that it came from God. And so the word miracle is used in many contexts in many ways by the religious and the non-religious alike. If someone survives a terrible car, car crash, it's a miracle. If someone is offered a job, a week before he's evicted from an apartment, it's called a miracle. Yet at the same time, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it's called a miracle. Are they the exact same? Well, in the sense that God was involved, yes. But were they all miracles? And scripture would actually say no. But I think the audience should hear us clearly here. The good things that happen in your life, whether you've prayed for them or not, but I hope you've been praying, <laughs> give God the praise and the glory. He's Amen. giving you these things. Even if they are quote-unquote natural, a job offer, good medicine, healthy, happy family, whatever it is that's good in your life, give him all the praise and glory. Uh, in Psalm chapter 8, or it's not technically a chapter, but Psalm 8, the psalmist sees sheep in a field, and he praises God for that. If he can praise God for a school of fish, then I can praise God for everything good in my life. But if we start applying the word miracle to every time that God answers our prayer with something quote-unquote natural, then we actually cheapen the words for sign, wonder, and miracle. Because true miracles made people in the Bible stop in their tracks. Even non-believers converted to Christ because of the miracles they saw. So those are the things that uh, we should have in mind when we're using the word miracle. The times that God worked through humans, through their hands... Uh, to perform that which humans cannot naturally or normally do. All right, so going back to the purpose of miracles, there were probably several minor purposes, and, and the word minor probably isn't even the right word to use here, but miracles clearly helped people. Just ask the leprous man who was healed. That helped that guy. Another thing is we see that miracles prepared the way for the kingdom. Now, the forerunner of the kingdom, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, he actually never performed a miracle. And that would be worth talking about one day is uh, that the angel told Zechariah that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Yet we also see that uh, John never performed a miracle. And even the audience noticed that in the work of John, that he never performed a sign. But Jesus, in performing miracles and uh and providing his apostles to do that prepared the way for the kingdom. And that's tacked on to the primary purpose for miracles given in the Bible. It was to confirm the messenger who was coming with a new message. Because out of the 1600 or so years of Bible history we have, only about 200 years show us times that God was working through the hands of men and women to perform miracles. And it was always when there was a new message or new messenger on the scene. And primarily we see that in the New Testament with Jesus coming in with his kingdom. Absolutely. Well, Lance, we want to thank you for joining us in person for this episode. And we're planning to record the second part of this uh, series later. We just want to go ahead and quickly wrap up everything that we've talked about today. We've talked about the Holy Spirit and who he is and the mm -hmm. fact that the Holy Spirit is a he and not an it and how important it is for us to get in that habit of referring to the Holy Spirit as a 
person and not a spirit or just a thing. Mm -hmm. We talked about what a miracle is. We looked at why there are miracles and that, as you mentioned there at the end, a miracle was to uh, say that the messenger was from God. It was to pave the way for the kingdom. We looked at how a miracle is something that is supernatural. It's not something that can regularly, regularly happen or naturally happen. These things include immediate healing of illnesses or walking on the water, raising the dead, speaking in languages that one has never studied before. And we've also looked at the things that are not miracles, such as a baby being born or someone surviving a car accident. But obviously there are a lot of other things that could be discussed in this subject, which is why, again, we're doing a second part to this episode. And in that second part, we're going to be looking at the idea of, or, or the question of, should I say, of are there miracles today and is the Holy Spirit at work today? Mm. And so those are going to be two very, very interesting subjects for us to tackle. And I'm looking forward to recording that episode. I know everyone else here is as well. It'll be a lot of fun. And I cannot wait for you guys to, to hear these. Uh, again, we want to thank you, Lance, for coming on and, and driving all the way up to Tennessee to help us with this. Uh, we're very thankful for you and your family and all the work that you guys have done, both in New Zealand and uh, in, New in Louisiana right now. And again, we're so thankful for you, brother, and all that you've done. Uh, if there's anything that we need to discuss with you, the audience, uh, there's several ways that you can reach out to us. If you have questions, you have comments, you have uh, suggestions for other episodes, we would love to hear any of those, all of those. So you can reach out to us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, uh, Through the Eyes of Jesus. We have an Instagram page, T-T-E-O-J underscore podcast. Uh, we have a Twitter under the same handle. Uh, we have an info, uh, email, info at T-T-E-O-J.com. We have a phone number. 731-439-9671. Thank you, Walker. <laughs> I, I can never remember that, but he, he hasn't memorized. I'm very thankful for him and all the work that he does behind the scenes as well. But... Phone number, email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of those. We would love to talk to you about anything regarding the scriptures, anything uh, regarding the, the, the Bible, anything regarding the Holy Spirit and miracles. Again, we want to strongly encourage you to check out all of Lance's books, uh, his, check out his YouTube channel, his website. We would love uh, for you to support him in the same way that you've supported us or more. Again, we're so thankful for him coming on the show. I'm very thankful for Walker and all the other people on this team who put in a lot of work behind the scenes to organize these episodes and help write these episodes. So I'm very thankful for them. And uh, if Walker, if there's nothing else that we need to say, then I'm going to ask you to close this out in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day and we're so thankful to be uh, chosen by you to be your people, to be uh, servants of your kingdom, to be steadiers, uh, stewards of your word, to be people who study your word diligently. And our prayer is, is that we can hopefully take something from uh, this episode today and uh, help it to better uh, equip ourselves um, to do your work effectively, help it to better um, our knowledge in your word and what your word has to say regarding Holy Spirit, regarding miracles, and regarding the Holy Spirit and miracles. And um, we pray that we can uh, hopefully in some way understand it in some way, shape, or form, as we know that this is a very uh, difficult topic to maybe comprehend all in one listening, or it's a difficult uh, topic to comprehend overall, and there's a lot of things that we may not know the answers to, and there's a lot of things that uh, we didn't even get to cover today that we'll hopefully get to cover just a little bit of it in another episode. But we pray that we can continue to study this 
uh, constantly and continue to dig deeper into it and dig deeper into what your word has to say and really look at these topics through the lens of scripture through the eyes of Jesus. And we pray that um, we can continue to uh, use it to help teach others uh, the gospel as well and to help show them the way to Jesus. Um, be with us in our each and everyday lives and help us and strengthen us as Christians to be better uh, people in your kingdom, to be better followers of you. Uh, we know that we fail you constantly, but we're so thankful for your grace and mercy that you extend to us. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And without his sacrifice, uh, we would not have that hope of heaven that we have waiting for us one day if we were found faithful to you. Thankful for Lance and Isaiah and all the other people who uh, helped this uh, podcast be successful. And we're thankful for our viewers as well. Be with each and every person and strengthen them in their spiritual journey and strengthen them in their walk with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.